Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Our podcasts are made possible in part by corporate sponsor, Store My Tumor. In this episode, we speak with the brilliant Layla. Layla is not your typical badass. She's next level, brains, beauty, and ingenuity. She's a realist, so you won't find sugar-coated smiles or bubblegum optimism here. Instead, she details the important stuff, an almost missed diagnosis, the science behind treatment, and how she's able to live a balanced, happy life. Welcome to the conversation. your story with us on our blog and on our survivor stories page and then I know you were corresponding a lot with William and just like the parallels of our um of our treatment plan and everything were just so like stunning great to meet you I know he was telling me about your story and it's kind of uncanny how similar you know it was for us so for our podcast I definitely you know we just launched a couple weeks ago it's called breast cancer conversations and literally we are just talking to those who've been diagnosed with breast cancer, those who carry um, one of the gene mutations, so maybe not have gotten cancer yet, but are considered previvors. Um, we have a couple shows coming up where we're actually speaking with medical professionals as well to kind of get their insight on you know, what we need to know with surgery, radiation, and as William was mentioning, kind of like the non-toxic side of things and products. I mean, really it's just breast cancer conversations and like the full spectrum. <laughs> um, <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> My name is Layla. I am in Durham, North Carolina. I'm 28 years old. I'm actually a scientist. I did my undergrad at Clemson University in biomedical engineering, and then I did my graduate work. I got a PhD doing cancer research at Duke. So I finished that in 2016, and then I started work at a biotech company in the research triangle, um, and our big focus is engineering lungs. This is kind of my first, you know, big girl job. <laughs> I'm good at coming out of grad school, and within two years, um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Yeah. So that was January of this year. Wow. That's incredible. And I don't think there's anything that can ever prepare you for a diagnosis and to be studying it and going through so much education and one, to be so young being diagnosed. And by the way, congratulations at being 28 with a PhD also. That (laughs) (laughs) That is huge too. So congratulations on that milestone. I went to my annual gynecology exam, and yes, I'm one of those weirdos that goes every year, and I think everyone should. Um, So my gynecologist was doing my breast exam, and she started going over the same spot in my right breast a couple times. And you know, that already makes you feel uncomfortable when they're feeling the same spot. Um, So then she asked me to feel it, so I felt it, and I could feel a mass. And you know, she said, it feels like you have a mass. Um, I'd like to go ahead and get you to have an ultrasound. I went for an ultrasound actually the next morning. Um, Weirdly enough, it was last January and it was a snow day. So they had an opening because there was a cancellation. I got in first thing the next morning. Whenever I went for my ultrasound, the technician spent very little time with me. She spent probably less than five minutes. She just asked me where the mask was, put the probe there. 
um, took a couple pictures, told me it was just dense breast tissue and left the room saying she was just going to get the radiologist to sign off on it. I was good to go, nothing to worry about. Um, and whenever she came back in the room, of course, you know, being the inquisitive person I am, I was asking her a million questions. I asked her, okay, well, if we don't see it on ultrasound, what can we see it on? Can we see it on a mammogram? Should we biopsy? You know, especially because I knew about cancer and how it gets diagnosed. You know, I wasn't okay with the idea of having a mask, but we just don't see it. It's like, okay, well, there has to be an imaging modality we can see it on. And she reassured me, she said to me, you know, we can't biopsy something that isn't there and there's nothing there. That just didn't make sense to me because I felt something there. I spent that weekend probably more stressed and upset and worried than I've ever been. I think I knew that I had breast cancer at that time. I think I knew from the minute she felt a mass that it was breast cancer, you know, based on what I knew about it, based on it feeling palpable, dense, um, it didn't, you know, it didn't feel like a cyst. I called um, two local universities first thing Monday morning, probably right when they when they opened up at 8 a.m. and pretty much begged them to let me have a mammogram because, you know, I'm far from being 40 and, you know, that's the time point when they usually allow you to have a mammogram. So I started trying to convince them in any way that I could and um, they got me an appointment um, within two days. Um, so I was able to go get my first mammogram and even there, they were asking me a lot of questions about, okay, you already had this checked on ultrasound. Why are you here for a mammogram today? And they wanted to just have my ultrasound sent over, but I begged them. I said, please don't just accept that ultrasound. It was a really fast job. I'd really just like to have someone here redo it um, and do the mammogram. And you know, from them looking at the mammogram, they wanted to do 3D imaging. They wanted to do another ultrasound that the radiologist herself performed. She spent probably an hour with me, looking through both breasts, taking pictures of the lymph nodes. And by the end of that, sat me down and said, we need to biopsy this today. It looks suspicious. Um, so they biopsied that day. I pretty much spent the entire day at the cancer center. Um, and then two days later, I got the call that um, it was breast cancer. It's terrifying. I mean, that's how I describe it to people. It's the terrifying story of how I got diagnosed because I could still be walking around right now, not knowing I had breast cancer, if I were to have just accepted that first initial, you know, uh, result that they told me. You sparked my interest in mentioning, you know, when you feel what that mass felt like, you know, I think a lot of times too, we talk about, you know, feel it on the first or self-detection, check yourself and how important that is. And for me, for example, I did feel something, um, so did my boyfriend, and it was one of those things where I wouldn't even call it denial. I was just like, you know what, it's always been there. Like, every month, this is just, you know, you do it around, you know, ovulation or a couple times just to see, like, how your breast tissue is different, and, you know, it almost this misnomer of, okay, yes, I was checking myself, but to me, it was always there, so it never actually felt different. Mm. Can you describe... Um, you know, when you felt something, you were with your gynecologist. And so you almost had this guide person to show you exactly like, put your fingers here, touch this. Do you feel that? Do you feel how that's different than the other tissue? 
Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that was definitely something that was helpful for me because I did go to her every year and we always felt through my tissue and we always talked about how I had dense breast tissue. So we always talked about the fact that, you know, you'd feel, you know, fibrous tissue, but nothing's going to feel solid. If it's normal Mm. tissue, it's, you're not going to be able to feel something solid. And that's what I could feel. Um, once I had a mass and that was really the big difference. Um, and from there, even I was a little bit in denial too. I was afraid to feel it again after that, you know, until I got a biopsy, I was afraid just because I knew it was something dense. I knew it was something that didn't feel right. And I was terrified. I totally hear that. And so in a similar story, so when I, so I checked myself in as well. So when this thing that I felt that I was just like, oh, it's always been there. It's always been there. One of the other signs that can happen with breast cancer is that there can be like dimpling or changes in the skin color or skin tone. And, you know, I, I was working out regularly. I started weight training and I was like, oh, this is awesome. I'm getting like really strong developed muscles and pectoral muscles. And, you know, I was wearing, I was at the gym working out because you know how we are in front of the mirrors, like flexing (laughs) in like a tank top. And I was like, you know, my chest actually looks a little different. Like one side is developing and getting stronger and more tone. And the other side of my chest actually looks smaller. And, you know, when I lean over in a certain positions or go to pick up the weights, I actually noticed a dimpling. Um, and I was like, that's weird. That hasn't been there before. And that's when I was like, wow, this is a dimpling around where the mass was. Let me go check with my primary care doctor same thing you know I'm under 40 I was 34 when I got diagnosed and same thing like we were told we had very dense breast and not to worry about it and I'm like fantastic if I don't have to worry about this then let me get a mammogram like if you're telling me that there is no cause of concern and I want to be able to sleep at night sure send me over to breast health and do the mammogram so there I was too getting a mammogram um, under 40, had to advocate for it and push for it. And I actually walked in thinking the same thing, like, oh, I'll just be late coming into work, maybe an hour late with traffic. I'm just going to go get this quick thing done. And what turned out to be a mammogram quickly escalated to an ultrasound. And then they didn't let me leave the office. They were like, we're squeezing you in at noon for a biopsy. And I just remember that flooding of emotion, signing away consent forms because of the dangers, because there's risks to everything, but the dangers with the biopsy and how that can impact like a collapsed lung and all this new information is coming to you at warp speed. So I finally called my job. I was like, I don't think I'm coming in today. (laughs) Um, But I would, another thing that you talked about too was getting the ultrasound first before the biopsy. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Did you go to a breath house clinic first and they just decided to do the biopsy, sorry, to to do the um, ultrasound first before even going to a mammogram? Yeah. So that was my gynecologist decision. And because I had dense breast tissue, she was thinking, okay, well, classically dense breast tissue isn't picked up well on a mammogram. And that's, you know, why they don't recommend mammograms for women that are young. So her thought was that that was the better way to go, Mm -hmm. um, was to go with an ultrasound first. Um, unfortunately I think it was just an inexperienced ultrasound facility in terms of in terms of cancer diagnosis. So I think the big difference, you know, between my two ultrasound experiences was one of them was at a cancer clinic with a breast cancer radiologist. 
Uh, she really knew what to look for. She really knew how to assess the entire area, assess both breasts and lymph nodes and, and look at everything. Yeah, that makes a really huge difference too. It's like, who's the person behind the machine that's reading the results? Absolutely. And I think that that's something, you know, that you have to look out for with yourself is if it doesn't make sense to you, you know, if it doesn't feel like it's a thorough exam, then don't let that be where you stop. You know, if, if yeah. it doesn't feel complete and you still have questions that they can't answer, then, you know, keep pushing. Absolutely. And that's really great that this cancer center you went to had 3D mammography. I think that's a really new technology in the breast health space. And not mm -hmm. every facility has that. What was your experience with the 3D mammogram? Yeah, actually, it was it was kind of surprising that they had it. I didn't really know. I mean, they did the initial, you know, typical 2D mammogram first. Um, and actually, the reason that they wanted to do the 3D mammogram is because they saw a spot in my left breast. So my cancer's in my right breast. But they saw a spot in my left breast that they thought was potentially suspicious. So I think at that point, they already kind of knew and could see the tumor on the right. And they wanted to be able to take a closer look at a smaller spot on the left. Um, so, yeah, it felt very similar in terms of the setup to the 2D mammogram. Um, so from a patient standpoint, it's not all that different. But seeing some of the images after, I mean, it was incredible. Um, they could see some of the calcium depositions that are indicative of rapid turnover of cells, which was one of the key, you know, suspicious findings that my radiologist kind of used to know that she needed to biopsy me that day. Wow. Incredible. And, you know, once I started learning about 3D mammography, I actually don't know if my breast health center does that. I didn't know to ask about it. But when I go, I actually have an appointment coming up in a couple of weeks, like a six-month checkup. And I'm definitely going to ask about the 3D option. And, you know, I went to one of these lectures to learn more about radiation and radiology in general to detect breast cancer. And they were saying with the 3D, with a 3D mammogram, it's almost like, slicing the 2D picture in, ha in multiple little segments. So you're kind of like flipping through the pages of a book and getting all of these different layers of what the breast looks like and how valuable that can be, especially with women who do have breast, um, dense breast tissue. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's what we term in kind of the science where we talk about optical sectioning. So you mm -hmm. can look at something through the layers and that allows you to build a 3D reconstruction. Fantastic. What was it called? Optimal sectioning? Optical sectioning. Optimal. So instead of, you know, we think of if we section a tissue, we cut the tissue, but this we can do without having to cut it. We can look at it slice by slice. You know, you have siblings and a boyfriend and family. Like how do you, what was your thought process in telling like loved ones what you were going through? Yeah, that was tough. I mean, so actually since my work was closed due to the snow day for my gynecology exam, <laughs> my boyfriend had actually driven me to my gynecology exam and he just waited in the car. Um, and so, because he has a nicer car that can get through the snow, he has a snow button. So <laughs> he drove me. And so actually from the minute I got in the car after my gynecology exam, you know, I was clearly shaken by the fact that, by the knowledge that I had a mask. So I could barely speak to him. I could barely tell him that they had found a mask. I remember calling my parents um, or calling my mom in the car on the way home um, and just struggling to be able to tell him. Actually, my dad picked up the phone and, you know, he was so jolly and happy and, you know, was just talking to me about what they had going on. And I just remember sitting there shaking and hardly being able to speak. Like I was already crying and 
it was so hard to even utter the words, I have a mass, or they found a mass. It was so hard for me to even acknowledge that. Um, I think I was just still in shock. Um, and then when I um, had that uh, appointment where the, I did all of the different imaging tests that day, my parents actually came to town. Um, they live in South Carolina. So they drove up and they spent the day with me at the cancer center, which was so awesome. It would have been so tough to not have you know, them there. My mom actually stayed in the waiting room. They let her go back to the women's waiting room. So every time I'd come back and then they'd want me to go back again for another imaging test, uh, she was there to kind of sit with me. Um, and then um, whenever I got the call after getting my biopsy, um, I was actually at work. So I had uh, gone back to work um, and it was first thing in the morning and I got the call on my cell phone. Um, I answered it. I remember the nurse practitioner telling me I had breast cancer. She just kind of sputtered out a lot of stuff. She told me that I was going to have to have chemo and potentially chemo first and that I was triple positive and, you know, all these things that I knew the words and I knew what they meant being a, a cancer researcher, but was really hard to process for myself. And I remember um, you know, she didn't tell me what stage I was. She didn't tell me a lot of information. She just told me I was going to have chemo and I was triple positive and I had cancer and she had a lot going on and kind of quickly hung up. So it was a very short phone call. I remember just being so stressed out because I felt like I didn't have all the information. So immediately I sat down and wrote probably 20 questions down on a piece of paper, the things that I felt like I didn't know or understand. And then I remember to calling my boyfriend and telling him, and he actually works at the same company as me. So I, he came over to my office and I, I told him, and then I knew I wasn't going to be able to function at work that day. So I went and told my manager, uh, he sent me home. <laughs> he told me, go home immediately, spend time with your family. Um, did you tell your manager, sorry to interrupt, but did you tell your manager yeah. that you just got diagnosed with cancer? Or did you tell your manager more like, oh, I'm not feeling well, I have to take a sick day? No, I told him that I just got diagnosed with breast cancer. So actually, it's kind of similar to you on the day that I was getting all the different imaging tests. I had planned on just being a little bit late. So I just told him I had a doctor's appointment and that I was probably going to be about an hour late. And then whenever the day kept going on and on, I ended up telling him, you know, I have a mass and we need to biopsy it because I knew, especially as a scientist, I have to use my arms. And they told me I wasn't going to be able to do that for a few days after the biopsy. So I had to share with him, you know, he had to have an understanding of why I wouldn't be able to go to work for a couple of days after. So I shared with him that I had a mask um, and that, you know, that I was going to that day. So I actually told him I had breast cancer. We cried together in his office um, before I left. And then I frantically kind of drove home. I remember before we knew at the end of the day that I had my biopsy, my report of the day and they had given me a BIRAD score of five. And so radiation oncology has this scoring system that they give based on different metrics and different imaging modalities. And when I Googled what a BIRAD score of five minutes said that I had a 95% chance of having breast cancer. So mm. whenever that was the case, I remember telling my parents, I have breast cancer. And I remember my mom saying, no, you, you don't know that yet you know, there's still a chance. And, you know, being the scientist that I am, I remember just being so upset and telling my mom, no, I know I have breast cancer. 5% chance is not enough for me to hold out hope anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think that they were kind of prepared um, because of that knowledge I gave them and they, you know, were kind of ready. But yeah, when they, whenever they, I got home that day from work, I told them it was tough. It was a lot of emotions. I think they were 
upset and angry and, you know, just processing it themselves too. I remember one of the big things my mom kept saying was that she wished it was her. Same thing with my sister. I remember calling her and since I'm the youngest, you know, she said, why isn't this me? It should be me. I'm the older sister, you know, uh, this shouldn't be you. You're the baby. So yeah, it, it was a struggle. And, and I think I kept it to myself outside of my immediate family. I kept it to myself for probably a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to utter the words I have breast cancer without crying. So I think I was you know, not wanting to just be crying in every conversation I had. But then within a few weeks, I started sharing my story with my friends and telling them. And I think I started drawing a lot of courage from that. Um, just being able to start saying that word helped me kind of process the news more. And it got a little bit easier to stomach every time I said it. And, you know, I started to kind of get into this mode of, okay, now I have to face all of these things. So I can't just keep crying about it and keep it to myself. I knew I was going to need more support than I've ever needed in my whole life. And so I reached out to everyone and I'm so grateful for all the support that I ended up having from doing that. Yeah, that's a really great story. And, you know, again, because our lives are like parallel, the same, (laughs) the same thing with me too. I remember driving to my first mammogram and I just, my parents are in Chicago. So I called my mom I'm like, hey, mom, I just want to keep you in the loop. Um, I'm going to get a mammogram. No reason to freak out. I'm just going to go, like, just feel like I need to share this with you. And I'll keep you posted. And so it was just one of these things where I just kept telling her, like, now we're doing this. Now we're doing this. And so when I called my parents um, to tell them the news that it came, like, the biopsy came back positive and I I had breast cancer, you know, they... It's not that they were surprised, but they already were brought on the journey with me that I was going through all of these tests. Right. You know, it was just very, like, matter of fact. Um, in fact, my parents were in the car together, and I was on speakerphone, and I was like, you, do you guys want to, like, pull over? Like, <laughs> I don't know if you should be driving down the highway together while I tell you this, but um, right. it was very, like, factual. It was like, this is the news, and, you know, I'm going to be meeting my oncological team that Monday, and getting a port placed that Wednesday and just, you know, I, I wasn't emotional about it yet. Cause I think I was in shock, right. You were just like, mm-hmm. these are the facts. Like you were mentioning, writing down like your 20 questions, like you're talking to the, the nurse and she's giving you all this information of like, okay, now you have breast cancer. So we're going to get you in like, you know, Monday at 8am, Tuesday at nine. And then all right. of a sudden I'm like, okay, let me like quickly jot all this stuff down Unlike you, I didn't tell my employer right away. I definitely wanted to make sure that I spoke with HR and had a little bit more of an understanding about what that would mean in terms of my career and position. Um, so that's why I wanted to also ask, because I know that's a very personal decision for a lot of people. At what point do they get their employers involved? Before you know it, similarly, my parents were on the flight um, the next day. They came to my doctor's appointments. It was really important to have the family there also when I met with the genetics counselor because Mm -hmm. I don't have a good sense of, you know, all of the aunts and uncles and second generation, third generations of who had what. So that is one thing that I recommend to like everyone listening to this podcast is to start documenting your family history with various, um, you know, types of cancers that may have run in the family because it can definitely skip generations and, Mm -hmm there's various panels that people can get tested for to see if they had a disposition to getting breast cancer. 
And that, that's also a very scary thing, too, because when we think about our own health care, the moment you start talking about genetics, that's like the one piece where it's no longer just an individual result. You're getting information that impacts your sister, your family, your children. And that can also raise a lot of red flags and family um, disputes, I can say. <laughs> um, you know, like, do we want to know? Do we actually want to know this information? So I got diagnosed with, um, well, I did the genetics testing. I think the, the shorter panel was seven different types of genes. And mm. I came back as what was called um, unequivocal for the BRCA gene. And mm. so I guess it's like really already in the journey, there's like already a gray area. Like I'm not BRCA positive or BRCA negative. And they send you this letter saying, if the genes are going to change, they'll notify me. I'm like, great. So I am already in limbo. <laughs> so in terms of my bracket testing, yeah, it's unequivocal. But you mentioned that you your bracket came back negative, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I did they did a 15 gene panel on me. So interestingly enough, my aunt had breast cancer when she was really young. Um, and so, you know, immediately I thought, okay, well, we're probably you know, a family that has a BRCA mutation. Um, and I kind of wondered that in the past when I was studying cancer genetics because of my aunt. Um, and it's something that we tried to actually pursue. Um, but because she's been cancer free for so long, her insurance wouldn't cover mm. it. Um, so something that as soon as this started happening, I was like, if I have a BRCA mutation, I'm going to be so mad because I tried to pursue this in the past. Um, and it was an insurance coverage issue that didn't allow us to, but interestingly enough, um, yeah, we came back as not having any gene mutations. Um, I did have a variant of unknown significance, um, that uh, similar to you, they said that, you know, as data unfolds about it, um, that you know, it may be something that they get more data on to say that it could be uh, a predisposition for cancer uh, or breast cancer. But as of right now, yeah, no, there's, there were no gene mutations. Um, mentioning kind of the family, it's interesting. I kind of, you know, pushed for my sister to go get her first mammogram. Um, and, you know, she's had struggles as well because, you know, since she doesn't have, um, a sister with a gene mutation. She just has a sister with breast cancer. She's had trouble getting mammograms covered and, um, you know, issues with different imaging modalities and has kind of had to push and advocate for herself. Um, so yeah, that's, it's been kind of a fight for that as well. There's been several times I feel like I've had to advocate for myself to get what I felt like I needed, um, throughout the journey. So yeah. it's been a learning experience <laughs> for sure. Just like in the breast cancer realm we always hear about women who've been diagnosed as triple negative that's a term that is thrown around a lot and when we started our conversation you mentioned triple positive do you want to kind of share with our listeners what kind of break that down for us and what that represents yeah absolutely um so what that means is that my cancer is positive for estrogen progesterone and the her2 receptor um so those are three classifications um of you know, markers that a cancer cell can express. And so being triple positive typically means that your cancer is more aggressive. So having the HER2 receptor makes you or makes your cancer more aggressive. But the positive side of that is that there are some targeted therapies uh, for uh, 
Perceptin and Progetta are two examples of um, targeted therapies. And so, yeah, so what that means is that my cancer cells are responsive to those factors. Um, the estrogen and progesterone side also means that I take specific medicines that suppress estrogen in my body because estrogen is going to drive the cancer uh, that I have. For anyone who's listening as well, I encourage you to jump on survivingbreastcancer.org and see Layla's story because you actually put together this amazing pictorial of what this looks like when you do have um, hormone-driven like ER-positive breast cancer. Thank you. Yeah, it's my goal on my blog to help to explain some of these you know harder scientific concepts to women. So one of the things that I feel lucky about is that you know, this wasn't a foreign language for me. Um, I have been learning and studying about cancer for so long. So for me, it was, you know, my second language. Um, and yeah. I know that's not the case for so many women. They get diagnosed and this isn't their field of study. And this isn't something that they've talked about or heard about before. So all of these words are things that they've never heard. And so one of my goals is, you know, to be able to empower women by, you know, sharing the knowledge that I have. Um, and I think that that can help women to make more informed treatment decisions for themselves. I think that that's something that we run into a lot is, you know, defaulting with whatever our oncologist or our you know, radiologist says and without really understanding. So I think that sometimes that can be a challenge for women is you're given a decision and you don't know how to make it. And I think that it can help a lot of women by just empowering them so that they can, you know, make their own decisions. What's the name of your blog? Uh, it's Sweater Puppies, Two Sweater Puppies. <laughs> okay, excellent. So we can definitely drive people there to listen. And did you start your blog once you got diagnosed or have you had it for some time with all of your research? Yeah, so no, I started it after getting diagnosed. Um, I knew that I wanted to be able to share my story and I um, thought about different avenues to do that. Um, and I ended up settling on writing a blog. Um, it's something that for me, I can, you know, sit down and kind of walk through how I felt and tell my story. I think it's also a way that I can, you know, share knowledge and explain things about breast cancer. So, um, you know, it's kind of a multifaceted <laughs> blog, it's a little bit of my story, a little bit about me, a little bit about science. So I'm always trying to sneak in science when I can. <laughs> no, so I actually did surgery first okay. and then chemo. And that's actually something that we spent a good amount of time deciding um, with my treatment team. So, I remember them telling me at first, okay, you may be a candidate for someone that we'd want to do chemo first with, but the downside of that is that you wouldn't be able to freeze your eggs. So I haven't had kids um, and it's something that I want to be able to do. So in discussing that option with my oncologist, you know, we talked through what that would mean. So, you know, I liked the idea of doing chemo first because then you can have a metric to kind of watch how well your body's responding to the chemo. So that's the big advantage there. But then the disadvantage for me was going to be that I wasn't going to be able to freeze my eggs. Um, the advantage of surgery is that you get to freeze your eggs first, but you don't get that extra knowledge about how responsive your cancer is to the chemo. Um, so that was actually probably one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. I remember spending a couple of weeks um, studying in the literature about it and what the different studies show and bringing tons of questions to my oncologist. Um, I was so focused on surviving and doing the harshest, you know, most intense treatment possible because I wanted to get rid of this disease. And at that point I wasn't as focused on 
you know, my life moving forward. And I, I was lucky enough to have an oncologist that, you know, kept reminding me, you know, this is something that we expect you to get past and want you to live a really long life. And we don't want you to look back and regret not, you know, thinking more about this idea of being able to have a family, if that's something you've always really wanted. And so, yeah, I ended up choosing to do surgery first. Um, and um, right after my surgery, within, I think, three days, I started my fertility treatment. Um, so it's a little bit intense, but I'm so glad that I did um, because now I have that assurance that, you know, I, I hopefully will be able to have kids one day. Oh, that's amazing. And I'm going to jot that down and bring you back on for a future podcast and maybe get a panel of other women who have had to make that really tough decision. I think that's something we can spend a lot of time on discussing. You know, At the end of the day, it's a personal decision, but just having yeah. a fluid conversation about what are the things that came into mind as you're making your T-chart of, you know, do I postpone chemotherapy? Do I do... Um, you know, freezing my eggs, do I go right into surgery, et cetera. And so I think that could be a really interesting panel discussion too. I decided to do chemotherapy first because I was so freaked out with this aggressive breast cancer. And, you know, the question came up, you know, if we wanted to freeze my eggs, we could, but that would delay the process mm -hmm. um, because you had to start all of the fertility treatment. And I think my mind at the time was so discombobulated that I was like, you know, I... I just want this out of me. So we went the chemotherapy route before the surgery with the hopes that the drugs that I was on would be able to shrink the size of the tumor and then enable me to have breast conserving surgery. So, you know, for, I, I don't know, my boyfriend reminds me you can always adopt or there's other ways of having families. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and so there's a lot of factors too that go into it. So I love the fact that you and I right away just have this, um, experience from either side of what that spectrum looks like. That's great. Absolutely. And that was something they discussed with me because I wasn't going to be a candidate for breast conserving surgery anyway, because of the location of my tumor. Um, so that's one thing that kind of went into the bucket of deciding is, you know, where, what's the location of your tumor? Are you a candidate for someone that could potentially have a lumpectomy um, if you have chemo first? So yeah, there's so many different factors that go into that decision. Did you end up having the breast cancer spread to your lymph nodes or were you eligible for that oncotype diagnostic? No. So I ended up having, so in my um, biopsy, they biopsied a node um, that looked a little bit suspicious, but it came back negative. So at that time they were saying I was stage one and that, you know, I was, you know, just going to have this surgery and, and that we didn't need to oncotype. Um, and then during the double mastectomy, they actually found a positive lymph node. Mm -hmm. um, so I ended up having um, a follow-up surgery two weeks later um, that was an axillary node dissection surgery where they removed all the rest of the lymph nodes on my right side. Um, so yeah, no, I, I ended up having some spread. Um, you know, luckily it ended up just being that one node. So one out of 12 was positive, which is good, but Still, you know, that puts me at a risk for things like lymphedema in my arm because I now don't have any more of those lymph nodes. So, um, you know, definitely not still not an easy outcome. <laughs> right. No, exactly. It's you bring up a lot of great points, too. So, again, because you're now my like cancer twin, I had the full node dissection as well. And my medical care team had to correct me because I was walking around the hospitals or its support groups just saying, oh, they removed all my lymph nodes. They're just all gone. <laughs> And they're like, no, they're not all gone. You still have lymph nodes in your chest area and throughout your body. 
So, you know, that was educational for me too, because sometimes when you hear the words like a full auxiliary node dissection, you feel like they're just taking everything, but it's really to almost create this, correct me if I'm wrong, but how I visualize it is like they're removing kind of like that bridge. So because your lymph nodes did come back positive that the cancer then can't hopefully cross the bridge and get into other parts of your lymph system and spread to organs. So, so that's the hope. Um, I am wearing um, my lymphedema sleeve, um, almost as like a preventative. I do notice that my arm is a little bit swollen, but not enough to be fully diagnosed as someone who has lymphedema. But I have proactively gone to see a massage therapist who specializes in lymphatic fluid and drainage. And she taught me so many great exercises to do to kind of massage and move the lymph fluid throughout the body yeah, I'm, I'm horrified because it is one of those conditions that is not reversible. So, yes. you know, I was told to wear the sleeve anytime I fly on an airplane, if I'm, you know, toting, you know, heavy luggage behind me. You know, I notice it too, even in random household projects, like if you're painting a new wall or, you know, lifting a lot of things and doing laundry and just kind of overuse, um, the sleeve comes in handy. Absolutely. I have a similar experience, especially, you know, being a scientist, I do a lot of pipetting, which means I move my arm back and forth a ton of times in, in, the day, in a day. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely feel some heaviness after that. Similar to you, I started seeing a lymphedema specialist after, actually after my node dissection surgery. Um, so yeah, a physical therapist that specializes in lymphedema. And I, I feel so lucky to have come across that. Um, I had porting. I don't know. If oh, if yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I had porting, um, which was extremely painful and uncomfortable. And when it started happening, I had no idea what it was. It just felt like a, I kept describing it as somebody's pulling like a rubber band, you know, across my arm. And when I try to reach for things or move my arm um, and I ended up telling um, a nurse practitioner in my um, surgeon's office and they said, that sounds just like porting. You need to go see a specialist. So um, she helped me actually, I just finished seeing her probably three or so weeks ago. So I saw her after the surgery and then I saw her through chemo. And then I also, we took a break and then I saw her again through radiation because those are all times when you have a risk of developing lymphedema and it helped so much. And I too wear my sleeve and I do my at-home stretches Sometimes I'm not as good at doing them as I should be, but likewise. (laughs) (laughs) And I can always tell when I don't because my arm gets really tight. Yeah, that's something that, you know, courting is not something that we're really taught, you know, taught about ahead of the surgery. And that's something that even talking to my physical therapist, she's talked to me about the idea of, you know, telling patients or sending patients to a physical therapist or a lymphedema specialist before you even have the surgery Hmm. so they can do some arm measurements and see that kind of your baseline talk to you about what it feels like talk to you about what to look for talk to you about the types of stretches you should and shouldn't do after your mastectomy and then that way when it happens it's not a surprise um but that's not something that i think is in practice yet it's definitely something i think you know is a need though i mean I had no idea to expect that kind of thing. Yeah, that is such great advice. So on both of our blogs, I think we should definitely talk about lymphedema and courting. Absolutely. That's definitely on my list of blogs to write. Yeah, the topics. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I remember, too, like the arm feeling heavy. Did you have visual um, changes as well, like under your armpit? Could you actually like see like these like wiry 
like cord. Like, they almost looked like um, spider webs to me. Yeah. So I didn't feel them in my armpit as much as my arm. So mm-hmm. I could see a couple cords that kind of ran from my elbow to my armpit. And it, it felt like a guitar string. Um, yeah. You know, it felt tight like that. Um, and it was such a crazy feeling whenever my physical therapist could actually, you know, break them up and you release that tension and it feels so good. It feels so great. <laughs> and I think that's one thing to remind our listeners, too, is that while these things do happen, um, they do get better. Right. Like the courting while lymphedema may be something we manage the rest of our lives. The courting is something that does go away. I was. I'm- yeah, I was told um, yoga and swimming are two of the best exercises to help with lymphatic um, movement. And so I've been telling myself, like, oh, if the doctor tells me I must do yoga, I must do yoga. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> the insurance companies haven't compensated me yet for my membership. but Right. <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah, one of these days. Yeah. Swimming has helped open up my arms so much. That's something that I've really enjoyed. And it's just been such a great way for me to kind of reset. I think I have a friend that a counselor and she was telling me that swimming is one of those activities that because you have to actually focus on swimming to be able to not sink or drown, um, that you actually, it forces your, you to take your mind off of other topics at hand because you have to maintain a level of focus on what you're doing. And so I loved that. And I kind of latched onto that. So actually, after I got diagnosed, I started doing swimming right after that, that, and have used it as a tool to kind of help, you know, with my lymphedema, help with my mental health and help really stress and get exercise. So I would highly recommend swimming. It can be tough. And certain parts of the treatment, there were times when I couldn't do it. But when I could, I did. And it really has helped. Yeah, what a great idea. Anything to get your mind off of it and really be present in the moment in the activity that you're doing. You know, as I mentioned before, they told me that I wasn't going to be a candidate for a lumpectomy regardless. So I was going to have to have a mastectomy on the side that I had cancer. Um, I also kind of briefly mentioned there was a suspicious mass on my left side. Um, we ended up biopsying that and it came back negative, but I think that experience alone and the fact that I wasn't going to be able to do anything sparing anyway, made it a pretty easy decision for me to get a double mastectomy. So they actually, um, my team, uh, treatment team wanted me to potentially wait on my genetic testing results to come back to really think about whether I should do a single or double mastectomy, but I didn't want to wait. I think I knew that because, you know, I was facing a mastectomy, I wanted to do a double. I didn't want to ever have to worry about breast cancer on the other side. Um, so I think for me, I, I made that, that decision surprisingly yeah. <laughs> pretty quickly just given my situation, even though they encouraged me on waiting, you know, for different results. I think you know, similar to you, I had this feeling of, I just wanted to get the treatment started ASAP. So I was like, okay, I made this decision. Let's go forward with it. Um, Yeah. I did have that kind of ask me and then the answer is different on it on a given day when it came to deciding about radiation. That was something that I really struggled with whether or not to do radiation. And I think I changed my mind probably 10 times a day on that one. Mm -hmm. That one was a really tough one for me. But yeah, I was lucky enough to be a candidate for a nipple sparing mastectomy. So that was something that was, you know, really exciting for me. Um, I think that it it was kind of another one of those instances where, um, you know, I was told initially by um, my surgeon that they wanted to do a nipple sparing mastectomy. I was a candidate for that. Um, And when I went and saw the plastic surgeon, she had already picked out what implants I should have. Um, 
And, you know, that was kind of a little weird for me. I, I had thought in that appointment, I had a lot of questions, just like I went to all my appointments and she kind of told me what I was going to have and didn't really have a lot of time to answer a lot of my questions. And so that was one of those appointments that was a little bit disappointing for me. I think I hear about these other women that get to feel different implants and get to, you know, learn about the different options and make decisions, but she sort of already decided for me. Um, and that was a little bit tough. And I think in that moment, I didn't have the, you know, energy to fight on that one. I think for that one, um, you know, I had been fighting for so many different things for that. I thought, okay, well, I know that, um, I, you know, am going to have this double mastectomy. They're going to do direct reconstruction. So I trusted her on that one, but looking back, it was, that's definitely one of those conversations that I wish could have gone differently. I wish I would have had more information. You know, I think I was just in such a rush to go ahead and get the surgery done to get the cancer out of me the reconstruction part was so little of a focus for me. And it's something that's hard to put your mind towards focusing. I didn't care what size or what type I was like, just get the cancer out of me exactly. and give me something that resembles a boob and I'm going to be okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah well, it makes that sense was- too. Like having to choose your battles, you, you know, everyone goes through like from that initial phone call of being diagnosed to needing to make really quick decisions with not necessarily all of the information at the time at hand. You know, it's it sounded like you had a lot of great options to go down a path where you can keep your fertility and, you know, freeze your eggs and that sort. And then at the end of the day too, like what is important? And that's going to be very specific for every person. And especially on the, the surgeon side, it was kind of interesting. So, you know, the first surgeon I went to with my treatment team, they had you know, said they were going to do a direct reconstruction. They were going to do nipple sparing. They were going to make the incisions underneath my breast rather than having to cut straight across. And then I had gotten a second opinion at another university. Um, and when I talked with them, that surgeon told me that there was no way we were going to be able to spare nipples, that we were going to have to do, you know, a full mastectomy. We we're going to have to take the nipples. We were going to have to do expanders and you know, then I'd get reconstruction. So two very different answers from surgeons. Um, and I ended up going with the one that felt like she could, you know, give me, you know, be able to spare my nipples and and do um, a little bit of a, you know, sparing surgery, at least under, with keeping the scars underneath my breast. Yes. Rather than so that's another thing to note is, you know, getting a second opinion can be so helpful sometimes um, in terms of making decisions and having different options. Layla, I want to be sensitive of our time, and I feel like we are just scratching the surface. So I know we are going to definitely continue the conversation in the future. But to leave on a super high note as well, you conclude with in your blog with this like amazing vision of where you're going in the world. That you know you're taking your cancer research, and you want to travel and educate and empower people, learn about the culture and everything. Do you want to expand upon that because your vision is just so beautiful, and I think getting diagnosed with something like this really kind of puts our life on a different trajectory. You know, I think that I feel unique in the position I'm in that I have this cancer research experience and I feel like I've kind of found what my calling is going to be now. I think that, you know, I want to be a cancer researcher. I want to push the limits on, you know, what we're able to do treatment wise. I want to work towards things like getting treatments in 
clinic faster. I see so many neat innovations coming through in the science, but it takes so long for that to get to patients. So, you know, I want to work on navigating that process and, and trying to push that to be faster. I have a vision of, like I said, empowering other women through knowledge of their own disease, as well as spreading awareness. So yeah, I, I'm just getting started on, you know, where I think I can go with this. I think I'm, I'm super excited about the idea of you know, being able to make an impact on breast cancer um, and make change to help all of us out there that are struggling. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast are from personal experiences and are not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always contact your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, please feel free to reach out to me. My email is laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. Until next time, keep on thriving.